And welcome back to the third episode ever of the Pacific Rim Pro Wrestling Podcast, the show that takes you between Tokyo and Seattle and all points in between throughout history. From Seattle, Washington, I'm Jim Valley, longtime wrestling fan and broadcaster. And joining me, as always, from Tokyo, Japan, the legendary journalist and wrestling historian, Fumi Saito. Hello, how are you? I'm doing good. Should I, should I say Yokoso instead of welcome? Yokoso, well, you learned that word. <laughs> that's welcome. Yeah. yeah. That's fine. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's too cheesy. <laughs> so, that's uh, right. how, how are you doing? Yes. How are things, man? I'm good. I'm good. It's my Saturday afternoon, uh, Saturday morning. And I'm here on a it's Friday true. night, and I've reached the age where this yeah. is super fun for me on a Friday night. Mm, mm. Actually, probably even when um, I was younger, this would have been super fun to talk wrestling with somebody of your caliber, to be able to just talk uh, and stuff. This would have been on Friday night. Yeah, it would have been probably more fun than most girls. <laughs> most, not okay. all. There's a few that were oh, more okay. fun, but all that's right. a different story. Hey, one of the things that uh, you wanted to talk about, as we've mentioned before, you uh, do the live stream of WWE Raw and SmackDown for the Japanese yeah, audience. Every Tuesday, yeah, every Tuesday morning and Wednesday mornings. Monday night in America, Tuesday morning in Tokyo. Tuesday night in America, Wednesday morning in Tokyo. So I do Tuesday mornings and Wednesday mornings every week. And Raw I... three hours, SmackDown two hours. And I know that we do have listeners in Japan looking at our statistics. So where is that stream? Where can people find it just in case they don't know? Uh, it's called The Zone. Uh, D-A-Z-N. The Zone streaming. That carries MLB, NBA, NHL, um, that, uh, PGA Golf Tournament, and all kinds of European soccer game, and uh, Japanese J-League soccer and professional baseball in Japan. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of program. Programs. So we don't the just... The only wrestling, yeah. Well, go, sorry. Yeah. So we don't just talk... Right, so go ahead. We don't just talk Japanese wrestling on this show. You also are kind of enjoying some stuff happening in WWE right now, particularly Kevin Owens and no Sami Zayn. Oh, very interesting, because I would... See, I almost don't want to call it storyline, because it's so realistic. Um... That was that's making Sami Zayn much delayed push, that the deserving push, you know, that I'm talking about the Hell in a Cell match, Shane, Shane McMahon against Kevin Owens at the very dramatic ending that Sami Zayn leading up to the point in her lot of arguments backstage with Kevin Owens, you know, about their upbringings in independent shows that uh, they used to share, uh, you know, car driving together in, a, in, a, in a snow in Canada. They used to share, what, uh, $20, you know, gas money and all those, all those, those things. And that the, what they were saying during their interviews backstage very realistic, you know, that uh, it was true that Sami Zayn, uh, formerly El Generico, right, mask wrestler, and Kevin Owens used to be Kevin Steen. Hardcore fans know that. Kevin Owens was always told that uh, he is not pretty enough. You know, he's a talented wrestler, you know, but his body is not for WWE. He, you are not good-looking enough to be in WWE. And he just uh, he overcame all those odds. That's truth, isn't it? To be that you know, 
top star in WWE. Same goes same with Sami Zayn that uh, he was told, always been told that very talented individual, good wrestler, everything, great athlete, but he is too short to be in WWE or your body, or your face, not for WWE. But they, he also overcame all the ads to be in WWE in the position he has right now. And also the interview that uh, Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn did in ring uh, was at that. Uh, Dan, uh, I, I almost said that uh, Brian Danielson. I should say that, but, but uh, now Daniel Bryan, general manager, that they were calling the all kinds true. That's all based on true story that uh, he was not getting a push because of your size. You are a talented wrestler, but not flashy enough to be WWE superstar. Then, yes, 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 movement actually WWE Universe created. Then WWE management actually took it. Like, right, he was given the the, the, the much deserving push. Now those stories were like, it came beyond storyline. Very realistic, realistic. Then last week, Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn called Daniel Bryan, you sold out. You know, it's like, oh, wow. It's like, these storylines are like more what ECW used to be, don't you think? Yeah, and, you know, I look back and you see the careers of Sami Zayn and of Kevin Owens, and they've mm-hmm. teamed, they've feuded, they've teamed, they've feuded. You know they're going to be Both like talented guys. They're very talented, but for for people of their generation, they're going to be like, you know, Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch, for example. You know, two people whose careers are always going to be connected and intertwined from being on the same side and having a legendary career-long feud. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And also, they overcame all those odds. You know. You know. So Kevin Owens still kind of a fat guy, you know, not a WWE type body, but uh, he was so talented it didn't matter. Same goes with Sami Zayn. He was told <coughs> you are not charismatic enough. You create the charisma, you know, and uh, he, he looks like one of the top guys now to me. Have the yes. body types changed in Japan as dramatically as they have in WWE? I mean, even just a few years ago, kind of like you've implied, Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens probably wouldn't get a shot based on optics. Have, have, have Has that sort of thing ever happened in the course of uh, the major Japanese promotions? The body type was never that big of an issue. You know, we had Abdul the Butcher, yeah, you look at Vader, you look at Bam Bam Bigelow, Scott Norton, none of them had WWE body. Stan Hansen, Bruce Brody, big guys, but not quite bodybuilders. So the, there was never an issue there. Well, we have some more wrestling tra- tradition here. Right, that's what I was going to talk. You and I have talked about privately, as you've mentioned, that because of the history of sumo wrestling, that, that the... The, the Japanese already conditioned that a powerful physique doesn't necessarily have to be a very cut and defined physique. Right, not necessary. It's good. That can be your gimmick, 
you know, you have we have now that the quite a, uh, two or three New Japan wrestlers that look like Mr. Universe, you know. But then uh, Tanahashi, great body, you know. But uh, if you look back, people like Jumbo Tsuruda, Riki Choshu, or Fujinami, um, they're not really Triple H body, right? Another thing that's happening right now in WWE is there's apparently some sort of viral infection going around I right guess. now. They reshuffled the deck for the TLC pay-per-view. Kurt Angle coming back to a WWE ring in a WWE ring for the first time in like 17 years, something like that. It's been a long, long time. Over decades for sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they replace Roman Reigns, main yeah. guy. Yeah. But it, it kind of reminded me of the time that, uh, if you remember, Mr. Perfect, Kurt Eng, you know, Kurt uh, Hennig, I'm sorry. Mr. Perfect Kurt Hennig came out of retirement and replaced, who was that? Uh, for the Warrior, Survivor. Was it? Yeah, for Survivor Series. Yeah. So, and then it was better almost. Yeah. And, and uh, you and I went through once that uh, there was a time back in 2000, 1999? Yes, I It was like more like 98 or 99. Then it could be 1998. Eight, that the Tokyo Dome card, it was already announced that the Hashimoto, Shinya Hashimoto against Ken Shamrock for the Tokyo Dome show. But Shamrock was signed away by WWF, WWE, WWF at the time. So there was like a wow, big haul in, uh, in the Tokyo Dome card. For well, Inoki's quick idea that uh, use now, you know, Naoya Ogawa, that, uh, war, you know, former silver medal in judo and also world cup champion who just debuting in pro wrestling and uh, Hashimoto against Ogawa became legendary so sometimes good things come out of these you know last minute replacement there was another time yeah. where a good thing came out when uh, Hulk Hogan came to Japan when he was still connected to WWE in 1990 he was supposed to fight Terry Gordy and Terry Gordy mm. dropped out, and Stan Hansen took his place. And Stan Hansen kind of got the benefit of, even though he lost to Hulk Hogan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He knew it, because it's in the main event. And also, they worked very carefully that uh, there was very convincing finish. Not just the, see, Hulk Hogan doesn't use leg drop as a finish in Japan. It's always Ox Bomber. Ox Bomber is a running clothesline, you know. But and it was more like uh, two big wrestlers collide in the middle of the ring, they connected in a clothesline. Then, then uh, Hulk Hogan pushed him down, and uh, the, the, it was not your know, like leg three punch and big boots and the leg drop finish. The clothesline finish was pretty convincing, and it didn't hurt Stan Hansen a bit. Why do you and think that, that is? Time, um, yeah. Oh, the match was even, and also Stan Hansen and Hulk Hogan had history in Japan. It was as if Hulk Hogan brought, you know, rookie Hulk Hogan for the tag team tournament back in, what, 80, 81? And uh, Hulk, young Hulk Hogan was kind of treated as Stan Hansen's protege, like... You know, and they already had non-televised single match at the Korakuen, and 
Stan Hansen beat young Hulk Hogan, but he was uh, that the con out outside the ring. That didn't hurt him that much. And uh, Hulk Hogan became his in his own star in Japan. Then I went to WWE and became the worldwide superstar. So Stan Hansen against Hulk Hogan single match at the time back in 1990 had more storyline than on history than on any single single match you can think of. Well, I know Dave Meltzer kind of explains it, that the fans were also grateful to Stan Hansen because they knew that he saved the card by stepping in at the last minute, and he kind of got the benefit from the fans for that as well. Maybe. Yeah, I couldn't think of better replacement either. But he was not... The Baba's choice, too. You know, Baba was making phone calls. He was living... Stan Hansen was living in Japan at the time, and uh, Baba couldn't find him for a few days, you know, because he called a few few different places. And Baba called Stan Hansen's father in Mississippi, you know, to find where Stan was, everything. It was funny. But uh, it was a very convincing finish and also very Japanese-style ending that the, both guys got up and shook hands and left. Shaking hand after the match is very important in Japan. Why is that? It's a sport. <laughs> How's that? Yeah. Now, had Terry Gordy, and this is just speculation, this is just guessing, um, do you think if Terry Gordy would have kept that main event spot and wrestled Hulk Hogan that he could have gotten over as strong as Stan Hansen did by being his replacement? You were saying that uh, if Terry Gordy Hulk Hogan match happened as he planned? Yeah. What do you think? Do you th- was Terry Gordy? Do you think he was right to be concerned about losing to he- in his territory to Hulk Hogan, or do you think he would have gotten over just as strong as Stan Hansen did it? Has he stayed if he had stayed in that spot? Well, Stan Hansen was a bigger star than Terry Gordy. That's obvious, right? If Baba Sato was, you know, was thinking about the card, that uh, you would naturally come up with Stan Hansen and Hulk Hogan on, on top. But Baba was concerned that Hulk Hogan probably had to go over naturally, right? And uh, Baba thought, oh, to lose to Hulk Hogan, and we cannot, use, we don't want to use Stan Hansen. Why and who would that be? And he thought it was Terry Gordy, the best choice. See, Terry Gordy could have gotten over big by losing if he had that great, you know, that uh, content, in, in, you know, like a course of match. You know, you never know. You never know, really. A uh, person can get over, a wrestler can get over huge by losing big match, too, sometimes. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah, we've seen it. We've seen it before. Many, I mean, obviously, uh, what another Hulk Hogan match comes to mind that same era, right before uh, that match with Stan Hansen. Of course, Hulk Hogan dropped the title, The Ultimate Warrior, and Hogan was able was to kind match. of get over bigger than Warrior did. Yeah, that's like a leaving the ring all bummed out and like a shaking hand, giving hug, and saying goodbye. Like, Is this the end of Hulk Hogan legacy? So that issue and storyline was bigger than Ultimate Warrior winning the title. So, yeah, how Hogan outdid it, right? Hey, speaking of legacy, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. we've got some questions here from listeners, and you can always uh, tweet us sure, sure. at Jim Valley, or you can tweet at Fumi Hiko Daigo. 
F-U-M-I-H-I-K-O-D-A-Y-O. And use the hashtag AskFumi. And uh, Guy Bagard wants to know on Twitter, the legacy of Yoshihiro Taka- Takayama. Yes, yes. Oh, that we can talk about a lot, yes. Huge legacy, yes. And with a number of different reasons that we have to go back like uh, maybe like 30 or 40 years before Takayama. Okay, but to make this long, long, long story short, he was our hope in uh, you know late 90s into two, you know 2000s. 1990s, we had UWF phenomena, right? UWF. The original UWF came out of New Japan. But uh, uh, the Maeda's UWF. See, UWF was the original group that openly talk about what's what's problem, what's the problem about professional wrestling as a whole. People call it fake entertainment show, right? The Maeda Akira Maeda was uh, the, the very first wrestler openly talk about that. Uh, this is what's wrong with professional wrestling. We are going to make professional wrestling a real sport. Great issue, right? Because these are the issues that you and I had to deal with since we were little kids. As soon as you mentioned that you are a wrestling fan somewhere, your Thanksgiving dinner or your school or anywhere, your cousin, uncle, the sports club you go to. That the, but that's so fake, right? The people who don't watch wrestling. But the, you are always in the position to defend professional wrestling for some reason, yeah? Oh, it's true. Weren't you, defend, yeah, weren't you defending professional wrestling as a kid? Because... It is something about yourself, too. Not just wrestling fan, but uh, the issue is always, uh, is it real or is it fake? It's an everlasting question, you know. It's easy to say wrestling is fake, but what you are so into, and you watch wrestling TV religiously every week because you love it so much, right, that uh, you know more about wrestling than the people who don't. I mean, those are the people, oh, wrestling, oh, it's so fake. I'll say they don't even watch it, right? It's true. Yeah, so it's like you find yourself defending wrestling. You're not even a wrestler, but uh, you find yourself defending professional wrestling at a very young age. But to make a long story short, that uh, Akira Maeda was the first wrestler publicly saying that, uh, yeah, this is a problem about professional wrestling. We are not going to bounce off the ropes. Ooh, right? Because that's what people think it's fake. When you shoot the guy into the rope, why would they come right back to you to do some moves or something, you know? Oh, that is so fake. Weren't you told that once or twice? Oh, yeah, I mean, people, whatever, even to this day, people snicker that that I do these wrestling podcasts and that, you know, seemingly mm. intelligent guy, you know, especially in a in a snobby area like Seattle. Um, of course, yeah, I, I, I still deal with it to this day. Yeah, but at the same time, though, okay, in Seattle, Tokyo, very similar. That, uh, But 
professional wrestling TV show is long lasted longer than any TV show. They've been around forever, right? Because we watch it, you know. Anyhow, that the UWF and Maeda, Otakara, Funaki, all those, you know, Minoru Suzuki to this date, they all came out, came out of New Japan Pro Wrestling. New Japan was originally saying that when I was a little kid, I'm 55 years old. When I was a little kid, Inoki was real and Baba was fake, right? Very interesting logic. But that didn't hold the water, you know. But uh, my UWF group came out of Inoki's New Japan. That uh, New Japan wasn't, you know, their answers. That uh, they are creating the wrestling group, professional wrestling. We are making professional wrestling real. Oh, you know, Japanese fans, serious wrestling fans believed it. So, you know... It became instant, like a, it's almost like a philosophical issue. We are going to support this UWF group. They are making wrestling real. Isn't that exciting? In the 80s. Right, but it was yeah. still, it wasn't, it wasn't on the up and up completely. Oh, no, no, no. But the, that the, raising the issue... And coming out of wrestlers' mouth was very important. We are changing professional wrestling. We are making it all real. You know, we have to support that. Yeah? Yeah. Anyhow, that uh, UWF era began. Yeah? And uh, there was, then there was an issue that uh, UWF group broken into three different groups. Akira Maeda's Rings, right? And Nobuhiko Takada's UWF International. American people call it UWFI. Then professional wrestling Fujiwara Gumi, three group. Then out of, uh, two years later, out of Fujiwara's group, Pancras was created. Total MMA. It's like a birth of MMA. But that's, I'll get to it. I'll get to that. Anyhow, that uh, professional wrestlers, we always, you know, had to deal with this issue that if there, it, it was all no-holds-barred, real fight, professional wrestler will still be, the, you know, the strongest. Ah, that's the issue because we can, you know, you can have striking, punching and kicking. We'll have wrestling skills and submission skills, and uh, stamina, you can you know, fight for 60 minutes, all those things, you know, the rest, Japanese wrestling fans play in their head. Yeah? Are you following me? Yeah, I'm, I'm following you. Yeah. Nine, and then, and then, and then there was uh, 1993, UFC. Not the same as, you know, UFC now, but the original UFC was created, huh? And it was Gracie's era, Hoist Gracie, huh? And uh, Pancras wrestler at the time, Ken Shamrock, went in, had this feud with Hoist Gracie. You remember that? Oh, legendary. Yeah. And then Dan Severn was the original, one of the original UFC star, professional wrestler, you know? So 
who, Japanese wrestling fans were so excited that the, uh, this is like we finally have a chance. This is the opportunity that the professional wrestlers are the greatest uh, athlete, um, real or not. And the King Shamrock, Dan Southern, start proving it. And uh, then, 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 then uh, you have Hicks and Gracie era. That uh, you see after you, you know, original UFC, Gracie family thing came. You know, they were not using professional wrestling as their tool. But in Japan, the issue was always there. If there was a no holds barred, see the word, the word no holds barred. Um, is okay in Japan, but the word no holds barred was never politically correct in America, right? Therefore, American people created new term MMA later on. Later on. Are you following me? Yep, yeah. So, yeah, how did this yeah. affect, how did all of this affect uh, professional wrestling in the, in Japan when suddenly it was kind of exposed that Pro wrestling wasn't what it was promoted as. Because yeah, who was supposed supposedly the best? Uh, Nobuhiko Takada had a Tokyo Dome match against Hickson Gracie in 1997, 1998. Two years in a row, Gracie beat him. Oh my gosh. And then two years later, Masakatsu Funaki, the hero and the creator of, of Pancras, he went in to fight Hickson Gracie. He lost to it. And uh, yeah, it's like, oh God, that uh, he, either Hicks and Basie himself was really good, or is it all about professional wrestling? Is this is this the reality of professional wrestling or professional wrestlers itself? Then there was the uh, era of Pride and K1, uh, end of nineties into two thousand. That uh, see, Nobuhiko Takada, after Gracie's fight, he had uh, you know quite a few more fight, you know MMA fight in Pride. He, he was not a star. He was not a star with MMA anymore. And then he, shortly after he, he retired, then we have um, gen, you know, somebody who is a generation younger than Maeda and Takada. That was Yoshihiro. Takayama, you know? Yeah. Taller than Takada, bigger than Maeda, and uh, he could probably do it. He could probably do it. That was our you know, Japanese wrestling fans' hope, you know, Takayama. And also, what was so good about Takayama, or still good, uh, is that he was the professional wrestler who was out there to defend professional wrestling and professional wrestling fans. He and Sakuraba, to be exact. See, both came out of UWFI, right? UWF International. See, when Nobuhiko Takada was the top star, Takayama and Sakuraba, both guys, both, they were young boys then, you know? But uh, after Takada retired, whose turn is this? The big hope, um, Kazushi Sakuraba, beat Hoist Gracie at Tokyo Dome. Great, greatest thing. And uh, he grabbed the microphone and said, professional wrestling, and professional wrestlers are stronger. Oh, wow, they clapped. You know, 
we wrestling fans always needed somebody who would defend professional wrestling for you. Are you following me? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And one more good thing, and that's the real biggest thing. Okay. What was the biggest MMA match during their, uh, 2000, you know, 2000? Not a UFC, but the Pride era. All right, I'll give you the answer right away. But uh, um, the to this date, the most memorable MMA fight at the Tokyo Dome uh, in in Japan pride, during the Pride era was the this devastating fight um, Takayama against Don Fry. Remember? Oh yeah. Yeah, the the fight they still talk about to this day, Takayama against Don Fry. Do you notice something, Jim? What are you? Okay, I'm not sure where you're going here. Where? What are you trying to say? Okay, Don Fry against Takayama, the biggest historical MMA fight during Pride era and during two uh, thousands zeros. Notice something. These, this was the MMA fight, historical MMA fight, fought by two professional wrestlers, not MMA fighters. Two professional wrestlers doing MMA fight. That was important, very important. <laughs> professional wrestler against MMA fighter, yeah, one thing, but that match was done by two professional wrestlers going against each other fought MMA then after the match they still said they were professional wrestlers then professional wrestling fans in Japan were like uh, spiritually saved <laughs> you know what I'm saying yeah you know you're right about Don Fry I, I, I forgot about that aspect I've always, I always just think of Don Fry as a as a fighter MMA? who did happen to wrestle yeah but you're you're 100% right um, what I think of, of, of Takayama, I, you know, mm -hmm. during that era, you know, a lot of wrestlers tried real mm -hmm. fighting and failed. Bam Bam Bigelow comes to mind. Um, Alberto Patron as Dos Caras Jr. Uh, didn't do the greatest. There have been, mm -hmm. there have been a lot of uh, people who have been exposed. And, Pretty you know, much. Yeah, Takayama... You know why he didn't have the greatest record in shoot fighting? No, no. But he was able to do a lot better than everyone expected. He took a tremendous amount of punishment, Beep. and he embodied that fighting spirit that is so important mm -hmm. in in Japan in Japanese culture and in the history of professional wrestling. So yes, he so gave fought, it his yeah, all and looked great, even though he lost. Mm -hmm. Not a great record. No, no. we know that. But he became, he became like a wrestling fans' hope. You know, Maeda created rings that later on became Toro MMA. But uh, he produced it. But uh, by the time he became Toro MMA, he wasn't even fighting. You know, he retired. And Takada lost, right? And. Uh, Sakuraba and Takayama were those two came out of UWF in a leg in a school, and uh, he, he they those two carried on that uh, somewhat a myth and legend and something you can believe in. 
And Takayama is like that. And while Sakuraba pretty much stayed with MMA genre, he's, he's still calling himself professional wrestler, but Takayama, after Dan Fry fight, he came back to regular professional wrestling ring and kept working, you know? And uh, he, at the time, he worked both New Japan and Pro Wrestling Noah. Takayama is the only wrestler who worked both major companies at the same time. Then he had IWGP title, NWF single title, and GHC, um, uh, the Wrestling Noah's title, and worked all Japan, had a triple crown title. Wow, Grand Slam. So it was big. How big of a draw was Takayama? Mm. Oh, that's kind of an interesting question because are you um, asking me that he's like a single draw? Like if he worked in a big show that he's the only, like a sole draw or something. I think it was group effort at the time because Pro Wrestling Noah, when Takayama worked Pro Wrestling Noah, we still had Misawa, the Kobashi, the you know all, all the all, all the everybody who you expect from wrestling pro you know pro wrestling Noah. When he worked all Japan, great Muta. Everybody else was still on the roster. When he worked New Japan, yes, that uh, you still had Chono Nagata. The you know it was before Tanahashi and Nakamura era, but you still had everybody else on the roster. So it's hard to say Takayama was the, the big big draw just by himself. And unfortunately, you know, he had that injury earlier this year, spinal cord injury. Do you know yeah. how he's doing these days? Have you heard anything? Uh, he's still in the hospital, but not in Osaka, but he came back to this Kanto plane. And uh, not too many people have seen him. Um, Minoru Suzuki went to see him, you know, so we have to hear from him. But at the time, at the same time, it's like uh, um, we're doing, making uh, everybody in wrestling making donations, you know, because it's very, very, you know, expensive medical bill it's going to be, yeah? And uh, to be real, realistic, that most hospital and uh, rehabs, you know, place, don't have equipment of his size. See, he's a very big, you know, Japanese person, six five, six six, two hundred eighty pounds. That uh, some, see, the original Osaka hospital didn't have the the right size bed for him. You know. Well, we certainly wish Takayama the best in his in his recovery. Yes, and wow. very special, very special human being nice guy and humble and also he um not just wrestling but he had a lot of knowledge about rock music the movies uh cars you know he he likes to drive you know like an old classic car and he fixed car and drives it you know and all kinds of good things that uh, he was like uh, after he re oh, he was also also a good actor that uh, he had the uh, series you know that he, he appeared in drama earlier this year, too. Regular drama, acting, you know? Nothing to do with wrestling. But uh, he he had a part in big drama. So. 
Got another question here on Twitter from someone called Workrate Midget. <laughs> Funny name. Uh, Ask Workrate Midget. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't even know what that means. It says here, uh, how did the average fan rationalize that only all Japan wrestlers challenged for the NWA, AWA titles, while the New Japan wrestlers never did? Yeah. But probably this person's question is based on on the notion that NWA is the world greatest undisputed world heavyweight title or something like that. Yeah? Sure. Yeah. Well, most wrestling fans in the 60s and 70s, way, you know, well into 80s, believed that the NWA, National Wrestling Alliance, was the greatest thing ever in wrestling. But we had to kind of doubt that, but... Uh, the notion and the concept the concept was there, you know. Giant Barber, the member of NWA board, right? And uh, all Japan, Giant Barber's company was the only officially affiliated uh, wrestling group with America's NWA, the greatest undisputed world heavyweight champion. But it was all story too. That uh, yeah, as a kid, I was always thinking that yeah, great that. The, NWA wrestlers, you know, Harley Race, Dory Funk, Terry Funk, uh, Jack Briscoe, the, you name, you know, all those big name wrestlers all come to Baba's side. And uh, you know, because New Japan had Tiger Zit Singh, uh, Killer Carl Crap, or, uh, you know, just didn't have much of a big name. The reading oriented wrestling fan knew about that, you know. But uh, this question, this person, how would average wrestling fan rationalize? But I don't know what the average wrestling fan's knowledge are, you know. Of course, um, all Japan's, you know, Baba's television will tell you, the commentary will, will always tell you, NWA World Heavyweight title is the only undisputed World Heavyweight, heavyweight title in the world then the TV viewers would believe it. At the same time, Inoki had a single title called NWF, you know. It's National Wrestling Federation, right? It was Ohio-based world heavyweight title that uh, Johnny Powers and uh, other people, you know, was running. And Inoki, you know, brought Johnny Powers over and he beat him. And What's interesting is though, Giant Baba could beat Jack Briscoe and be a champion for one week and return the title by the time champion goes home. The same thing, Giant Baba could beat Harley Race, become NWA champion, televised. And by the time Harley Race goes home, you know, two weeks later, magically, somewhere on the house shows, Giant Baba drops the title, non-televised match, right? Then uh, by the time Harley Race goes home, he's champion again. So sm semi-smarter or more informed fans, you know, they scratch their head. Ah, this is how it's done, right? But in when Inoki beat Johnny Powers and got the NWF title, the supposedly championship came from America, this championship stayed in Japan the next eight years. So Inoki fans, but... Giant Baba does that, but Inoki beat American champion, and that championship belt stayed in Japan for a long time. And also, that uh, the whole concept 
of NWA from St. Louis, Missouri, right? Um, being undisputed, the oldest world heavyweight title, help actually helped create the, the new concept of let's create the real undisputed world heavyweight championship. And the idea done by Inoki and New Japan, that became IWGP. Yeah. Interesting, right? Yeah, no, it is interesting. I think, I don't know if people remember this, and maybe we could save that part for, for next week. Originally, the IWGP sure. was, a, was a tournament. To, de yeah, to decide who is the greatest wrestler at the time. Yeah. yeah. It didn't become heavier title until, like, 1986. But uh, the story was really great that uh, um, Inoki gave up NWF title to enter IWGP tournament. Stan Hansen gave up his cowboy hat. That's big. Please don't say it's stupid. But Stan Hansen gave up his cowboy hat. Okay, put it on, into the much like Undertaker put his hat on on, 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 on canvas. Abdullah the Butcher came came in came to New Japan ring. He um, Gave, gave up his Puerto Rican heavyweight title or something like that. Sakaguchi um, gave up his North American title. Taiji Singh came up and he gave up his. Everybody who had some uh, heavyweight championship, he brought all their belt into ring and gave up. Like, okay, we are entering IWGP tournament to finally decide who is the best in the world, once and for all. So we believed in IWGP concept. Yeah. So we needed NWA concept to create an IWGP, a new undisputed world greatest wrestler. Very believable story in the drama, don't you think? Well, I wasn't there. Was there ever pressure on Inoki as far as did he put a lot of pressure on uh, New York at the time to try to get like a real run? We've talked about his his sort of questionable run with the WWF Championship, but he did, mm, was he mm. did he lobby strongly to get a to get a legitimate long, at least a Baba style run, recognized run with the WWF title. Uh, one thing we know for sure is that Inoki would not want to have Baba style run like a beat Bob Backlund for once and keep the title for one week and lose it back to Backlund before he went home. And then, then Inoki had to lose. Yeah. Inoki was unbeaten like 10 years, though. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's ridiculous in, in itself. But uh, Inoki was never beaten during his peak era. Nobody had one, two, three there. Almost, almost, never happened. And uh, yeah, and there was before. See, we skipped a little bit of history there. That uh, um, to be a member of NWA was a pretty good issue for like three years. See, when Jan Baba opened All Japan Pro Wrestling in 1972, he was automatically became you know a member of NWA. Okay, and uh, Inoki and New Japan applied 
for you know they went to Las Vegas and went to you know annual annual NWA conference in Las Vegas, 1973 and 1974. New Japan and Inoki was denied you know voted against that uh, the Mike Lavelle of LA or Vince McMahon Sr. Uh, of New York. Those two and, and Eddie Graham at the time and NW Florida, those promoters supported Inoki, but the other NW members like the probably like the Dashik, the Von Eriks, the you know all those other Georgia members of NWA uh, voted against it because he was Baba, they were on the Baba side, you know. So every, all those story was written in sports papers, so wrestling fan knew about that. Very interesting, and that was the reason that that uh, more reading-oriented wrestling fans knew why all the NWA wrestlers go to All Japan Baba's Group, then uh, nobody really goes to Baba's Group. But at the time, around the same time, WWF and WWF now it's WWE, but New York wrestlers started appearing New Japan Inoki's side at the time. Pretty much everybody, but Bruno Sammartino, you know Stan Hansen, uh, you know Andre the Giant, of course, uh, how Young Hulk Hogan, Bob Backlund, Pedro Morales, Jimmy Snuka, Peter Maivia, you know all, all kinds of WWE and the, the WWE superstars, Pat Patterson, Sergeant Slaughter, all those WWF stars were regular with New Japan in early days. You know, uh, well balanced, though. This week uh, is the big Antonio Inoki show. Is that right? I'm going to my tonight. Yeah, memorial show. <laughs> he's not even dead, but uh, he's going to have his funeral, his own funeral tonight. We'll, uh, we'll get a report from you next week on the show, so stick around for that. But when it comes to Inoki, yeah, are, are they going to do a ceremony? Do you think this is an yeah, angle ceremony. or do you think this is real? No, 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 this isn't, well, if you look at it, everything Inoki does is angle. <laughs> yeah. But that's pretty cynical, I guess. That's not very nice. But uh, it will not be treated like wrestling angle because they are going to have actual funeral in the ring. Not that he's going to casket or anything, but uh, um, Stan Hansen is here. Tiger Jit Singh is here. Um, Fuji, uh, Yoshiaki Fujiwara will be in the ring. Dan Fry will be here. Um, Peter Arts, uh, the uh, Dutch kickboxing superstar. Peter Arts is going to be here. Um, Scott Norton is already here. And uh, they are going to have actual memorial ceremony in the ring. Is that weird? It's a Buddhist thing. What does uh, when the average person thinks of Inoki these days, has has enough time passed with his scandals that people just kind of remember the good times? I guess that had to uh, cover different generations of fans because Inoki fans that are older, you know, like people late fifties into sixties, or even like a people are in their 70s, they are still Inoki fans. They've been wrestling you know, Inoki fans for over 40 years or so, right? So th those people are still there. And people like me, 
uh, we can see, you know, what's right and what's wrong about Inoki, will still be there. And uh, people under 30, actually wrestling fans under 30s, in their 30s, I don't think they've seen Inoki's match uh, in besides the, the DVDs and old videos. You know, they haven't seen it. Inoki hasn't wrestled since what 1998. Yeah, and but also, he's famous. And I mean, New Japan is obviously, you know, his his baby, but it's sold and it's different owners, and they mm-hmm, probably mm-hmm. don't really promote his history these days, do they? But uh, you know, streaming service that New Japan World, much like WWE Network, that has all kinds of Inoki's match in it. They don't adv- advertise it that much, you know, purposely. But uh, yeah, all 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 the Inoki's important matches are in on this streaming thing. So it's hard to say they don't necessarily promote it, but the footage is in there. What do you think? We, we've talked, obviously, about the, the Inoki match, but when it comes to a worked pro wrestling match in the history, what do you think is the the biggest Antonio Inoki match in the minds of wrestling fans? Oh, that's so hard, because Inoki actually has his Best of best of Antonio Inoki DVD, and it's like a 10 DVD sets, <laughs> you know? If you talk about Inoki against Hulk Hogan or something, there are 10 Inoki against Hulk Hogan matches. When you talk about Inoki against Stan Hansen, there's like a 15 Inoki against Stan Hansen matches to pick from. And his retirement card in 1998, he had single match against Don Fry. He had single match against Sting on the same night crazy idea but uh, so he always wanted to be um, relevant you know I remember it's my best two matches of Inoki's Inoki against Strong Kobayashi and Inoki against Kintaro Oki but that doesn't ring a bell does it not for me no yeah yeah so Inoki had what thousands and thousands of matches it's really hard to say what was the best match most important match historically, of course, Muhammad Ali match. You know that's that every single person you know pretty much remember. And serious New Japan fans would say Inoki against Fujinami, Inoki against Riki Choshu. Those were important matches. Yeah, and uh, well, for a little bit, relatively younger than younger fans, but still in late 30s into 40s. Probably say Inoki against Great Muta, that was an important match too. And so it's really hard. Inoki is from 70s, Inoki from 80s, Inoki from 90s. I remember matches from Inoki's, you know, from 1969, Antonio Inoki against Chris Markov or something. That was like really exciting. So Inoki he doesn't really have Mr. that yeah. Hulk Hogan body slamming Andre the Giant moment that everybody points to, other than the Ali match. Uh, but like I said, every match is treated as the biggest match in in, in history. Okay. <laughs> it sounds corny though, but uh, seriously, at the time, Inoki against Strong Kobayashi, 
two big you know, Japanese superstars going against each other. I mean, they believed it was to make, you know, determine who really is the best because ba Giant Baba never answered. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So he always had biggest match in the history thing, like every other year. Hey, one yeah. of his most infamous matches that I, I think still gets some play from time to time on YouTube is the match against the Antonio Noki against the great Antonio. Oh, the, 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 as a content, it was like horrible. Though. Yeah. But what people want to want to watch is what went wrong because they want to see the shoot moment. It was, you know, videotaped. Yeah. But the, as far as Inoki's legacy goes, great Antonio match is not important at all. Not important. But so, for other people's eyes, you know, this can happen in professional wrestling match. This Somebody got shot on. You know, Inoki got mad and, you know, shot on great Antonio. Wow, that's great. But that is not necessarily part of Inoki's legacy, though. Was it that a miscommunication? Or was great Antonio really trying yeah, to get over on Inoki? Uh, but he wasn't even that much of a professional wrestler. No, he wasn't. And yeah, and then also that uh, Pat Patterson was on the tour, and he, um, I think he, and the the rest of American, you know, like seven eight of them, right? Pat Patterson um, made sure that uh, Greg Antonio doesn't get over. He, this had a lot to do with Pat Patterson working backstage too, but we, we had to find out. That's interesting, right? Yeah. That shoot thing just doesn't happen because Great Antonio didn't sell for Inoki for two minutes. Inoki doesn't get mad that easy. It could have been something that the, during the course of the tour, something was happening in boiling, 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 right? And that was a night something was going to, you know, you know, give. That makes more sense to me. Were there any repercussions for the great Antonio after the match? We see him kind of get his clock clean during the match. What about after? Yeah. But that was on the last night of the tour, and he was never brought back. So that was the end of the story, I believe. Was he ever in any danger for, from, from anybody? I don't know, but he thought he was a big star. See, it was not Great Antonio's first trip to Japan, okay? The first trip for Great Antonio to Japan was uh, 1961, World League, um, Ricky Dozen's big tour, okay? Back to Big Bill Miller, Carl Gotch, other people were on the same tour. Great, Great Antonio was put over so big that uh, before the tournament began, TV had a special that the, he's pulling big bus with his chain, pulling the bus, and then bus moves. So people thought that the Great Antonio was the greatest thing, That the, and the story at the time was that somebody found him in jungle or something, something real stupid, you know, and then he was raised by gorilla or something. And uh, it was a story, and uh, big giant great Antonio with his chain pulling the bus. The bus, you know, like a big bus, like 50 people can get in. 
And he's pulling the bus right in front of the Imperial Park. So that was the instant hit. So same great Antonio came back 10 years later. He probably thought he was still star. What do you think? So uh, we'll get a report from uh, your, uh, your as you attend the show, um, and we'll, we'll hear about that next week. Uh, one mm-hmm. other thing that I wanted to talk about, uh, we've mentioned your history in Minnesota and being a, an exchange student when you were still in high school. And yeah. uh, this week... Then went to college. Yep. Yeah. Uh, this week is the 14th anniversary of the death of, I believe, one of the people that you were you were close to in your journalism yeah. career covering wrestling. The death of Mike Hegstrand, Road Warrior Hawk, who passed away this Road week Warrior Hawk. in 2003. Nice yeah, 14 years, you know, up until a couple of days ago, it didn't hit me. 14 years? Oh my gosh, it is true. 14 years. It was 2003. 14 years? So, ah, it's okay. Yeah, I don't want to sound corny, but it really feels like it was yesterday. Really. He was shocked. I got a phone call from somebody. He said, Did you know that Mike passed? You know, Mike passed in. Really? You know, six months before that, he had a cardio um, monopathy, uh, you know, that uh, during the Australian tour, you know, non-WWE, but uh, ex-WWE people got, you know, know, had had a tour to Australia, you know, Legion of Doom, World Warriors, and uh, Mr. Perfect Card Hanging, and and, uh, all those ex-WWE superstars had a tour in Australia. Uh, with cardiomyopathy, he almost died in Australia um, six, seven months earlier, um, prior to that. And, uh, yeah, it was weird that uh, Cart Hennig was in, was in hospital and was like, uh, you know, watching over, you know, like, hey, you know, I'll be here all night, you know, you'll be safe, you know, and then they're taking care of Hawk, right? And Carl Henning was the one who ended up dying before Hawk. It was all weird in, like, this seven, eight months period. But, uh, um, oh, God, he was a sex. You see, a lot of people say a lot of things about him, but to me, he was the nicest guy and really... Um, he never acted like prima donna, or uh, he didn't walk around like his shit doesn't stink. It's just so real, so real that you know, honest, nice person, you know. And uh, as funny as it sounds, he was friend uh, with you know Mondale too. Mondale, you know. Walter Mondale. When, yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that funny? He's from from Minnesota. Yeah. And uh, during first Clinton era, starts 1992, right? Um, Walter Mondale came to Japan as a, as a Japan's ambassador. He lived in Japan for four years, Mondale. And Mr. and Mrs. Mondale was living in Japan, and Hawk was working pretty much full-time as a one half of Hellraiser's tag team, you know, Animals out because he was injured and had a you know collected insurance and so he was out for like three years, and Hawk signed with New Japan. Him and Kensuke Sasaki became Hellraisers. It looked they dressed up just like Road Warriors, and Hawk was working Japan 
um, pretty much full time uh, 92, 93, 94 and Hawk and Mondale's daughter Eleanor were real good friends in Minnesota so uh, they were told to look him up you know so actually uh, Joe Mondale and Hawk and I went out to have lunch and uh, we had a real good time and then and, and, uh, uh, he, one time we actually went back to um, U.S. consulate and then met, met up with Walter Mondale and then we had a cup of coffee. And uh, it was funny that uh, Mike, uh, Road Warrior Hawk, was like a really the nicest and the well-behaved you know, person in front of those people. It was like a really funny, you had to be there. But uh, um, they had a lot of respect for professional wrestling, you know, believe it or not. You know, they are well, from Minnesota. Well, Walter Mondale was the vice president yeah. for Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy, Jimmy Carter, Carter, yes. His uh, yeah. mother, Miss Lillian at the time, sure. invited Mr. The, Wrestling 2, Johnny Walker, two. to her home in Plains, sure. Georgia. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So it was not like uh, we had like a, like a uh, trauma or, or stigma about those things, you know. And uh, it was funny because, well, you, you work full time here. Yes, I got, you live here. Well, let's get together again. And uh, it's funny. Um, back in, in 2010, uh, Mrs. Mondale passed, passed away too. So oh, those people are gone, you know. And we, yeah, we were talking about that a little bit while, you know, while, while back. Hawk had, see, Road Warriors were huge, okay, in Japan. Worked all Japan, New Japan, S, you know, SWS, and other companies, you know, and they always came back as Road Warriors, you know, or starting from 1982 all the way to, like, Road Warrior Hawk was, I mean, Road Warrior Animal was here just last week, you know? Yeah, Animal was here last week, you know? And he still had World Warrior animal hairdo and all the men, you know, like a face painting. And he even brought uh, Spike gear too. When did you first meet uh, the Road Warriors? When did you meet Hawk? Did you uh, meet him in Minnesota or did you meet him in Japan? Uh, in America. 83. Yeah. They were still rookie, but already Road Warriors. And they were not yet, you know, in Japan. And they heard about when you when you go to Japan, we will make more money, right? Like it was like, Animal was twenty four, Hawk was twenty seven. You know, they were young. You know, they think about it, twenty four and twenty seven. Oh, they're young, but already road warriors. They had long run, and that didn't, you know, being superstar didn't really change who they are, you know, who they are. And it's too bad that uh, they were, see, they looked so uncomfortable with WWE environment. Agree? Yeah. Yeah, see, they, they had two or three runs as a Legion of Doom, you know, but uh, they were not Vince McMahon creation, so they didn't get the push, see, um, for WWE, they would take demolition over Legion of Doom, right? You know, um, see, they are not WWE production, so they didn't really click or blend in that well, you know? But at the time, they had to go because they didn't want to be in WCW, you know, and there's not only so much choice to make major, major league money.
You know, I had a radio show in Portland, Oregon in, uh, in the 2000s, yeah. the early 2000s, and I had Hawk on a few times. And one of the things he mentioned about Japan, he said, you know, Bruiser Brody told him to always protect Japan and always have that as an option for when things didn't always go uh, their way in the, in, the, uh, in the United States. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, they are making real big money. You know, the first trip, you know, like they are making like a 15,000 a week at the time. Big money. And uh, they are making like up to like, you know, like a 30,000 a week. Then they're working like 10 weeks a year. So just by having like a two or three trips, right? They are already making like a, you know, 300,000 just in Japan. How did it work yeah. when they held the, the titles in, in all Japan? Did they just do a lot of tours? Or were they gone for a long time, not defending the titles? Ah, uh, they dropped title. Oh, they had a rules that uh, that uh, you can the title can change hands with DQ. So they had the DQ finish. So there weren't the times that the animal or hawk actually got pinned one, two, three in Japan. That maybe happened once or twice, but uh, not much. So they were protected, I think. It, it probably never mattered because they were all warriors. Do they have a legendary match in Japan? Mm, that's hard because what's good about Road Warriors in early stage was that they come in and have a match in you know like a three minutes, boom, 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 they beat somebody and go. You know, that was Road Warriors. And always fans were seeing, saying that, I wanted to see them a little bit longer. But it was the way it was. See, with that music, you know, the Iron Man, you know, music, they run through the crowd, they start the match, boom, 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 boom. They just work three to five minutes and beat somebody with, you know, that, uh, what, what do you call it? Uh, we call it like a... Uh, the Doomsday Device? The, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had different name for it, though. Yeah, Doomsday Device is fine, but the same, whatever high impact something. Yeah, anyhow, they beat somebody, right? Uh, then they just run back. It's like, oh no, I wanted to see them longer, but that was the way it was, you know. And they were always friendly with fans. That you know, bad guy in the ring, but outside they were always there to take, you know, for autographs, get picture taken, you know, go just. Not a character, but just being themselves. Go out to Roppongi nightclubs, just being themselves and stay out all night and party with people. You know, and just it was an interesting era. <laughs> How did fans nice react guys. to to Hawk and Kensuke Sasaki, the Power Warrior, as the Hellraisers? Yeah. Did they see it as a as a ripoff, or because Sasaki was Japanese, did they get over? He was like a superstar rub, major, major rub. And also, he was um, like a hard-to-believe type of situation. Like, Road Warrior Hawk actually come to Japan and signed contract with New Japan, working pretty much full-time basis. He was on every tour, every tour, and he was in Japanese side you know, fighting against Americans, like, you know, against Scott Norton and Hercules or somebody, you know. Uh, he was like a, he, Road Warrior was, they didn't take as a ripoff, more like a, 
more like uh, handing out your you know Road Warrior legacy, and he made Kensuke Sasaki a major league star. He did. See, he was a little below Three Musketeers. Three Musketeers, we call Muto and Hashimoto and Chono, right? right. Three young superstars. And Kensuke Sasaki was a uh, a little below that, you know. But this Hellraiser's run made him a superstar. One other question about the about the Road Warriors and their legacy in Japan. When they had the 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 Tenru group, the Super World Sports. Yeah, yeah. They, they did the they main event. Side. Yeah, they did the main event. Uh, Road Warriors against Hulk Hogan and Tenru. And it's, it's right. my understanding that that wasn't as big of a draw for a match as they had hoped. Right, right. They didn't promote well, and uh, it was run by wrong people. And to be honest with you, that uh, weekly pro wrestling in, it was kicked out of you know SWS press box, so I wasn't able to get in at the time. I snuck in, no, but but uh, officially, uh, our pass, backstage pass, press pass was taken away from by SWS at the time. Then we didn't put on the magazine either. Were people and people were disappointed by the finish of that match as well. Uh, what was that? I think it was was it a double countout? Was it just was it double, double countout? Right, yeah. uh, or double disqualification? Yeah, some, some, some schmoz, Yeah, yeah. So it was outdated though. At the time, all the other Japanese groups, including the people like UWF we talked about earlier, or even New Japan, or Misawa's you know reign, they were getting rid of those all DQ finish and double countout finish. See? We were, you know, like a, kind of educated as a kid. When two big superstars ha- have a single match, you know, against each other, it will always be either DQ finish or double counter, right? And uh, they were still doing it, you know. So it's really disappointing, you know. Be more creative, right? It's like doing business for the boys and the company. Not for the audience. So when you look back on the greatest tag teams in the history of Japanese wrestling, particularly in that era, where do you think the Road Warriors rate, not necessarily their entire career, but just the the Japanese portion? Where do do Japanese fans see the Road Warriors as a tag team as far as legendary status? Number one or two, because you always have to argue that that we have to talk about Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody tag team that can never happen again you know so it's always you know it's easy to be romantic and sentimental about it see Bruiser Brody is no longer with us and the team was broken up but the Stan some people always say Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody tag team were the best but you could never say that you know for it's, it's who you think is the best is the best See, when I was a little kid, Giant Baba and Anthony Inoki were the tag team together growing up, you know. And uh, for some people, the Funks, they were the best. They are the best, you know. Dory and Terry, they are the, my favorite tag team, of course. And the Road Warriors, if you grew up, you know, if you've grown up in the 80s into 90s, yeah, probably they are the best too. 
it's really hard to say. Well, some people say Giant Baba and Jumbo Tsurura team, maybe. Or the Road really Warriors. Hard. Or, yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, well, I, I, I wanted to add one more team. Abdul the Butcher and Dashik. And Road Warriors were big draws. They were able to, to main event big shows themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, they grew out of those five-minute match, too. They were able to have somewhat longer matches in their own uh, care, you know, career. You know, the Road Warriors against Muto and Chono, they have pretty good 15 to 20-minute matches, you know. And, uh, yeah. Um, the... Yeah, they, when they had a, like a name tag team opponent, they had to have longer matches. Tenru and ha- Ashurahara, you know, or yeah, those teams. You don't have five minute matches. You will have go out there and do good 10, 15, 20 minute matches. Yeah, so it depends on the era. To uh, just different group, different opponents different political issue at the time something like that so we will get your report next week on the Antonio Inoki show that you're going to be yeah attending. I'm going actually two shows tonight I'm trying to go to two shows back to back crazy huh I'm going Inoki's you know is uh, Inoki's funeral four o'clock in the afternoon but I'm going to drive to Yokohama and go to all Japan's big show that uh Triple Crown title match, Suama against Joe Doring. I'm going to have to watch that too. So I'm going two shows tonight. And we'll get your report uh, next week. Japan, huh? <laughs> we'll get your report yeah. on both shows next week and we can answer questions. And uh, I'm sure we'll come up with some more stuff. But uh, this was a very informative show. See, that's, that's why really? you're the man. Okay. Nah. Yeah, tell your friends to send more questions, you know. I'm not here to put myself over, but I like to share good stories. Wrestling fans are the brothers. Yeah? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so until next time, be sure to follow me on Twitter at Jim Valley. And you can follow Fumi on Twitter. Where can they follow you? Uh, Fumihiko Dayo. F-U-M-I-H-I-K-O-D-A-Y-O. And also you can find me at Fumi Saito on Facebook. There we go. And you can also hashtag Ask Fumi for next week. If you like the show, be sure to comment and subscribe. We're on iTunes, so you can get load, download it now on your favorite podcast app. I like Podcast Addict. That's one of my favorites. We're on Podbean, <laughs> Podbean obviously, but we're on iTunes, so you can subscribe on iTunes or whatever your favorite app is. So if you can comment, if you can give us a good rating on iTunes, that will help us. And be sure to share. It seems to be growing, and I'm hearing a lot of good feedback. Back. I think fans appreciate oh, an intelligent conversation and something they can really sink their teeth into. Ah, <laughs> very good. Appreciate it. All right, so next week we will see you next time on the Pacific Rim Pro Wrestling Podcast. Goodbye from Tokyo. <laughs> <laughs>